Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, the monthly podcast series brought to you by the team that produced the Global Cosmetics Newsfeed. 2022's theme is Future Proof. This month's topic is diversity in beauty, and I'm your host, Siobhan Murphy. A 2022 McKinsey report on the beauty market suggests that creating a path to a more equitable beauty market represents a 2.6 billion opportunity. And the road forward, while perhaps not easy, is clear. However, if the cosmetics industry implements the category growth strategies of the past, will it not produce the same results as the present, overconsumption? Or is there a third way? To help me answer these questions and more, it is my pleasure to introduce this month's panel. Hello to Charlotte Bunyan, Chief Strategy Officer at Colt London, a warm welcome back to Mimi Ghosh, technology and disruptive commerce banker at JP Morgan. And welcome to Megan Rain, co-founder of CBO Sia Cosmetics. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Great to be here. Yes. Wonderful to be back and exciting topic ahead. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having us. Charlotte, let's start with you. What are the social drivers that Cult have been tracking currently influencing the future proofing of a diverse beauty industry? That's such a great um, question to kick off with. And certainly what we've been seeing is more of this democratization and reclaiming of beauty as defined by the individual, not a homogenous, Eurocentric and narrow set of standards. I think increasingly people are really rejecting perfection and there's plenty of data that supports that. A recent Euromonitor survey looked at how people were defining beauty and it's moving away from notions of glamour, for example, with half of the respondents talking about healthiness or inner confidence as the key determinants for beauty. There's many other things that we are seeing a lot of, um, in particular, the growth in male beauty or genderless beauty. We're also really, really pleased um, to see that there is a recognition of ageless beauty. And you can see how the beauty and wellness industry is really responding um, with innovations in the menopause space, for example. I think also that sort of recognition that there are still strides to be made and that we can be more inclusive and more accessible um, is certainly sort of something that we are um, aware of and that we are keen to push our clients as well to recognize certainly you know with the purple pound um, and recognition of individuals with disabilities um, and I think also really importantly this sort of more more of a shift of the the fun of beauty that it's a a, a way of sort of self-expression and you you can see with innovations in metaverse spaces, for example, that you know there's a real reclamation of beauty as self-expression, playfulness, and, and not perhaps feeling a need to conform to a predetermined set of standards of what beauty looks like. And at JP Morgan, Mimi? Absolutely. You know, when it comes to beauty, we all have one thing in common and that's we're all different. And I think it's really beautiful to celebrate those differences, whether, you know, that's from the perspective of race, age, gender, or, you know, ability needs. Um, you know, it's exciting to see the industry changing quickly and breaking free from the historical stereotypical view of what beauty means. And that's been sort of holding the, the global landscape back for decades. I think there's still wood to chop, but seeing some of those strides and investments being made across the board 
in creating a more diverse and inclusive uh, industry have been really, really exciting. Companies that are drawing in, you know, a broader range of consumers and making beauty much more accessible, either through exploring non-traditional markets and underserved communities, as well as, you know, providing more personal experiences in how it's, um, you know, product development and targeting its marketing and messaging have been um, hugely impactful. You know, a Forrester study found that 77% of consumers have chosen, recommended, or paid more for a brand that provides a personalized service or experience. And Accenture um, also had a recent study which showed that 75% of consumers were much more likely to make a purchase when they felt a brand resonated with them and had something that helped to personalize or differentiate the offerings from um, what was across the mass market. I think a big part of this is also seeing how technology brings many of these trends to the population faster and creates a lot more connectivity among communities. Um, in turn, you're seeing, you know, many of those that were historically maybe not recognized or included in the beauty conversation gain a platform and be able to, um, you know, sort of bring home their demands, their needs, and um, their ideas to the market much, much faster. Um, you're also seeing just, you know, from the success, whether it's Fenty Beauty is a great example of a, of, a, of a brand that put inclusivity and diversity at the forefront of its brand messaging and how that drove the overall um, conversation around diversity in, in beauty forward or global trends as you're seeing, you know, K-beauty, um, trends from Ayurvedic beauty become a lot more accessible across the globe. I think there's so many interesting opportunities here and, and to echo um, what Charlotte noted, yes, across, you know, seeing more men's routines get traction with brands like Manscaped and, and Dr. Squatch, or even across the generational divide, um, whether it's, you know, sort of ARFA targeting, you know, perimenopausal and menopausal concerns to brands like Ever Eden, which are really focused on baby and child uh, personal care from a very early start. It's just been I think a wonderful um, opportunity to see how much these consumer trends and social drivers are elevating the overall industry. And democratization, Megan, is that key to your brand, Sia? Absolutely. Um, so I just want to echo what my um, two, you know, partners in this podcast have mentioned about um, the. The awareness, the new platforms where people are getting voices, you've seen really this demand um, for diversity and this, this real um, demand for brands to step up and not, um, you know, do what the status quo is. And so um, Sia Cosmetics was actually created because my partners and I were already in um, a subset of the beauty industry called the independent beauty supply store market, which is a very powerful, um, important market that actually serves um, a large majority of the women of color in America, immigrant population, as well as rural women. Um, so people who don't normally have access to, you know, some of the higher end retailers or um, just geographically are not close to them. And we noticed that this, these stores and this consumer base was not getting access to high quality cosmetics and high quality color cosmetics. And my partner being from South Korea, 
um, it made sense for us to look to the Korean, um, the Korean beauty landscape, bring the best of the best to this um, market. And so by doing that, we like to say we're democratizing not just prestige beauty, uh, but also um, Korean beauty in general, because up to now, it, especially the color cosmetic side, has been uh, very sort of, you know, inaccessible, not a lot of shades offered. Um, and we like to say that we're following in the footsteps of other brands uh, like Fenty that have already been named. Um, and I just want to also add that as obviously every country, every market's experience of this is different, but having um, been in the United States for the last couple of years, there's obviously been um, a tremendous amount of discussion around social movements, around diversity and inclusion. Um, and the consumers, just like, you know, Gen Z and millennials are much more aware of environmental issues. They're also much more aware of diversity, inclusion, and wanting the, you know, businesses that they buy from to represent their values as well. Charlotte. What are the digital drivers Cult Beauty have been tracking currently, assisting the future-proofing of a diverse beauty industry? I think there's quite a few different ones that we're observing. Um, and I think sort of some of the key ones are around new platforms. So certainly gaming, you know, we're seeing that there's sort of a, a greater recognition from beauty brands, certainly, that this is a, this is a space that really they should be much more engaged with, you know, study, um, just this year by Boutique showed that 91% of beauty shoppers are already playing video games and 60% of them are playing games that involve the metaverse. And I think this again goes back to that, you know, natural connection between beauty and playfulness. Um, and these sort of digital platforms enable that self sense of self-expression and an ability to sort of play, connect, immerse and build communities. We're also seeing, you know, again, sort of innovations that have been around for a while, but are just really driving sort of more traction. Things like connected packaging, you know, a really simple way for people to connect their experience in store with storytelling around that brand or being able to tell people more about provenance of ingredients or actually connect them to other digital channels, um, including, for example, you know, the, the brand's website or, or possibly even their social channels. And I think, you know, that's, again, a really smart way of using that small real estate on beauty packaging. Um, and again, obviously, there's questions about what what role packaging must play. Well, this is a smart way of making sure it works harder for brands. Um, clearly, again, something that we are seeing a lot of is virtual try-ons. And that's been something that, again, has really, really gathered pace, certainly over the last few years, where you're able to use those um, sort of AR try-ons to get a much better sense of how a beauty product might, might look on you. Um, and that has, again, you know, several studies have shown that that increases purchase intent. I think there is a watch out with that, though. Um, and I think, you know, there is a concern, a study back in 2021, you know, found that sort of younger people, that sort of 13 to 21 year old cohort um, who are using beauty filters a lot, it does drive an, a desire for cosmetic surgery. And I think 
that's that's really important to, for beauty brands to recognize their responsibility with the digital tools that they use. Um, we've also again seen over the past few years a real, real adoption of creating virtual experiences for consumers. So whether that's virtual stores or virtual exploratoriums, um, and that that really gives people the choice of being able to um, experience that brand in person in-store, virtually, connect with virtual assistants. And, um, and the role that AI plays is, is, I think, also, you know, an interesting sort of digital driver as well, which is to enable people to get much more personalised and much more specific advice that can help them. And again, we've seen a sort of real growth in, um, in startup brands as well as more established brands investing in this and looking at how can they use AI as a way to really personalise somebody's um, experience of their products. And we've seen that in skincare, but you can also see that um, across sort of other wellness brands too. And at JP Morgan, Mimi. Sure. So from my seat, you know, this is a really exciting question, just being part of the tech and disruptive commerce group and covering companies that are on that bleeding edge of tech and, you know, sort of new emerging brands and services within the consumer space. Um, you know, we are seeing technology be a massive component in driving beauty forward and really shifting what historically has been a very transactional experience to one that is much more experiential and bringing and driving inclusivity and diversity along the way. You know, with the onset of the, the 2020 um, pandemic, uh, we've, saw, we've seen um, a lot of the digital and tech-enabled influence on beauty become accelerated. Brands and retailers engaged, you know, through sophisticated AR and VR applications, simulating real-life beauty counter and virtual makeup try-ons, live streaming, how-to videos, and masterclasses. You know, this continues, I think, to be a significant opportunity to help drive and support new consumer behavior. And this shift to a more digital normal um, will help bring some of that cutting-edge beauty tech to that brands and retailers have been experimenting for years to that forefront. You know, I think innovation in the space used to be sort of a nice to have and, and now is much more of a must have. If you think about, you know, virtual try-on and how that's been a game changer for diversity and inclusion, you've got examples of companies like Modiface, which was acquired by L'Oreal, Perfect Corp or Il Maquillage, all integrating AI and digital systems within uh, the platform to help expand uh, underrepresented consumers in shade matching or seeing what products may suit them in a way that's much more accessible. It takes some of that guesswork out of the, the purchasing experience and, and creates a much more fun uh, environment for try-on and experimentation. I think some other digital trends that have been really in, interesting and ampli amplifying uh, growth and beauty have been things like creating that community and education, whether that's through virtual masterclasses. Um, you had companies like uh, Blue Mercury as well as Ulta Beauty report far greater consumer engagement. I think Blue Mercury, after holding a number of virtual masterclasses in 2020, reported sales tripling and order values doubling. Um, similarly, Bobby Brown, the the brand saw conversion rate increase and in, in over 10 times the average order value um, after implementing some of these sort of community engagement and class 
uh, style uh, platform, you know, class style content on their platforms. Um, I also think some other sort of areas of tech that are really interesting include, you know, sort of 3D printers or that trend of bringing expensive spa treatments to the home, whether that's, you know, companies like Beauty Bio or some of the light therapy businesses starting to create much more accessible at-home treatments that for for a long time were sort of out of access to many of, of the consumers that are interested in experimenting with beauty. Um, I also think it's really interesting to see how early stage companies like Zamface with, you know, sort of technology that matches influencer characteristics to consumers looking for an influencer with the same um, either complexion, hair type, or beauty needs to provide recs to them. You're starting to see some of these types of companies um, help make those connections among uh, influencers, marketing, as well as consumers. And, you know, sort of the last sort of area that I'll hit upon is really across, you know, sort of a personalized experience that's leveraging logistics and data in order to drive you know, more targeted sort of product development and how that could benefit in creating a much more diverse and, and inclusive beauty landscape, whether it's, you know, sort of thinking through, um, you know, certain demands and collecting that data and using that to drive forward innovation or improve upon uh, logistics and, you know, sort of ingredients collection so that there is a more um, accessible uh, view for for consumers to access different types of products and solution oriented, um, you know, services and products that I think is is a huge uh, value proposition for for brands to be um, offering to the consumer base, and, and we're just really excited to see you know how technology and digital can continue to um, accelerate the uh, the diversity within the beauty landscape. And at SIA, Megan, what digital technologies are assisting your brand? Thank you. Um, so digital technologies are sort of a double-edged sword for a newer brand in that there's so much exciting innovation, um, but not all of it is you know, accessible for newer brands. What I'll say is what's really been helping us and I think driving the entire industry towards future-proofing um, diversity is just this immense amount of data collection that's been happening in the past 15 years. Um, we often talk about the negatives of data collection, which obviously there's a lot of negatives, but one thing it's really done is help the entire industry understand the size of these different consumer niches and how much money they're really spending, which then drives forward the understanding that diversity is not just a nice to have, but it's also a necessity. Um, so for example, the market that we are in, the independent beauty supply store market that we launched in, is worth $19 billion, um, which is almost the size of the entire prestige retail market. Um, and you know, 10 years, 20 years ago, the size and scope of that market and the true cultural impact of the consumers that buy at that market was not fully recognized. And so things like, you know, venture capital funding, like bank loans, um, like manufacturers, it's very hard to get outside people to invest in brands that do focus on diversity when you don't have the numbers. 
Um, additionally, as great as some of these AI and try-on, digital try-on technologies have been, the first generation of them were really focused more on um, people of European descent and they left a lot of other skin tones out. And what's really exciting and something I think is really going to future-proof diversity is this new focus on creating AI and creating try-on platforms that also really focus on diverse skin tones. So for example, a new company called Parfait in the hair extension and wig space just got um, funded by Serena Williams and they have AI focused on matching women of color with different wigs and hair products. So I think those types of technologies are gonna continue um, pushing the entire market forward with much more diversity and inclusion. Um, and SIA, of course, is part of that. Indeed. So Charlotte, what are the environmental drivers Cult have been tracking currently future-proofing of a diverse beauty industry? I think it's really, really important to sort of say that, you know, those sustainable environmental factors are so front of mind now for consumers. There's, you know, that real sort of focus on conscious consumption and, you know, the, the beauty industry and wellness industry has, um, has really historically not been quite as good as this as perhaps it could done and could have been. And I think um, certainly the question around packaging and, you know, how, how can you ensure that, you know, the packaging that is there is forming, you know, a clear purpose and of value and where, if possible, can you strip away that packaging? And we've seen obviously lots of innovations with um, products that are, you know, doing away with them. Shampoo bars, for example, where you have very, very minimal packaging um, and that again I think connects to this sort of desire for um, how can you sort of reduce elements of, of products in order to to not just have a better and more sustainable environmental impact but also you know that drives down cost potentially for for a wider audience to in order to be able to sort of purchase those items you know certainly things like the reduction of water in products um you know using base ingredients to which water can then be added added and you know there's various subscription beauty kits now that are following the lead from many sort of cleaning subscription products which have done the same you know forego is one example but there are many others um i think also it's really important to stress that um you know there's there's also a sort of big flag around greenwashing and that you know it's really important for consumers to believe in you know what brands are telling them about their sustainability credentials um, and certainly again you know questioning sort of things like clean beauty, vegan products, you know, are they really um, living up to those promises? Um, I think also a, a look from many brands at how they can use sustainable ingredients in the creation of their products. Um, Territory um, is a great example of a clean skincare and wellness brand, which focuses on sensitive and eczema prone skin. Um, it's really focused on looking how it can use those sustainably sourced all natural ingredients such as sea moss, plantains are low um, in order to create a product that you know delivers on its efficacy but also is sustainably created um, and, and I guess I think alongside that um, a recognition that you know where those natural ingredients are perhaps in short supply you know where can lab grown ingredients you know sort of fill that gap and and still ensure that we are um 
protecting and delivering on that sustainability process. Um, finally, I think another thing that connects with both environmental and sort of digital tools is the use of AI to really, really be smart about managing sustainable stock levels and inventory management, um, ensuring that, you know, products aren't overstocked, that we aren't then sort of creating um, a sort of a, a landfill situation of unused products is, is really, really key. And I think AI has a really important role to play in that, which will help deliver um, a more sustainable industry for the future. And Mimi, what environmental drivers do you see impacting the future proofing of a diverse beauty market? You know, expanding on what what Charlotte shared, you know, I agree. I think, you know, key environmental factors uh, across the beauty landscape are, you know, going to be that sort of responsible and sustainable sourcing of ingredients, as well as the continued trend of greater transparency of ingredients and materials and sourcing that are being used. Um, consumers are demanding this and we're seeing, you know, as education uh gets further and farther uh, into the population, just how, how important um, many of these things are that perhaps, you know, earlier were, were more sacrificed in favor of, um, of ease or pricing or solution. This, I think it's becoming much more table stakes to think about um, what environmental impact and drivers beauty companies are having and how that, um, you know, expands or limits uh, the various consumers from accessing uh, different solutions and active ingredients, you know, as, as this sort of discussion around transparency and, and sustainability become uh, much more seen as table stakes, more brands that target diverse populations, both from, you know, a physical appearance perspective, as well as from a, a needs perspective, um, can integrate many of these best practices into how they're delivering and creating uh, new, new products in the future. Um, I think a couple of things that I'll double click on um, that, that Charlotte sort of touched upon as well are thinking about, you know, how do ingredients cater to a broad range of needs and, and where are there opportunities for expansion? How can you, from a logistics tech perspective, you know, either through partnering with companies like an Anvil or Suchi, um, be able to really optimize and streamline the way that you're sourcing uh, materials and tracking all of that, um, you know, sort of responsible, um, responsible sourcing for your manu manufacturing processes. I also think it's sort of interesting to think about um, some of the the waterless beauty trends that we've seen, so, like such as shampoos and conditioners from Ethique or others um, that are really working in tandem to try to provide greater access to consumers and, you know, reduce costs, reduce, you know, economic footprint, and perhaps provide, you know, high quality products at, at you know, lower, um, lower costs or, or, you know, in a more economically friendly way as they, you know, sort of take out um, the water and, and the weight from some of these products. Um, and I also think it's kind of interesting to think about some of the synthetic beauty trends or synthetic ingredients and how that could potentially increase um, accessibility of different ingredients to, to consumers and without, you know, with, within an ethical way that's not, you know, impacting our environment to provide the same sort of quality of um, solutions and actives um, 
to consumers that are, are looking for those things. So I think there's quite a bit around how uh, focusing on environmental drivers can also go hand in hand with increasing accessibility and um, providing, you know, an even broader set of solutions for a very diverse uh, population of consumers. And for your brand CEO, Megan, what are the environmental drivers impacting you? Yes, thank you. Um, so we are a newer brand, but it has never been more exciting and there's never been more opportunity um, to really be able to bring in some of these sustainability efforts. Um, when we ordered our first order of products in 2019, the options for things like packaging, um, et cetera, were nothing compared to what's out there now for similar pricing. So the fact that the whole world has sort of been having this conversation and that consumers are really driving it allows us as a brand to really be able to bring in more of those solutions. Um, the other thing is we create all of our products 100% in Korea, formulate them 100% in Korea. And one thing I really love is that a lot of Korean manufacturers have been um, focusing on technologies for actually extracting um, the essences and the effective uh, properties out of ingredients in a much more effective way that retains the um, nutrient density, but also is better for the environment. So um, some of our products are actually extracted using an ultrasonic extraction method, which means instead of using heat, which is how the majority of ingredients up to now have been extracted, it uses, you know, ultrasonic vibrations, which actually one makes it much more effective for use on your skin, um, because of course heat can damage some of the effectiveness, but it also reduces the heat needed um, in that process. And Additionally, a lot of that technology is starting to go to water purification. So places like the Middle East are going to be able to start creating their own products there as they're able to purify seawater using these same technologies without having this massive impact on the environment. Um, so it's a very, very exciting time. Lots of technologies coming out. Um, and we're, we're very focused on being able to give our consumers sort of everything they need in one streamlined um, line. Now, the one thing, one caveat I'll say is that um, we continue to also focus on our main mission, which is bringing prestige beauty to everyone. And as we continue expanding as a beauty industry, we need to keep in mind that we don't get so myopic with one goal that we leave out another goal. Um, we don't want you know, the beauty industry to sort of split into one sector of beauty products that because of the consumer's you know, income levels are able to bring those high quality products, the sustainable packaging, et cetera, and leave everyone else behind. Um, so it's, it's really a balance and it's making sure that consumers are able to get what they need um, at you know, the price point they can pay. Super interesting, ultrasound. So Charlotte, what are the regulations that Colt have been tracking currently, aiding or abetting the future-proofing of our diverse beauty industry? 
This is a really interesting question, and I'm going to respond in a slightly controversial way to say that in many ways, you know, the beauty industry is, is pretty unregulated. Um, and certainly in terms of, you know, things like ingredient provenance, you know, there's, there's really sort of... Um, you know, quite quite a lack of regulation, which can prove sort of challenging um, for, for consumers to sort of understand, for example, what is really meant by organic. Um, what I think is particularly interesting um, from Cult's perspective is that you know, there's much more that we're seeing with brands taking action in their own hands, you know, and certainly things like um, in France, there's advertising regulations for social media um, in order to ensure that there's explicit labeling of retouched images. Um, and I think that really feeds into the responsibility that the beauty industry and, and you know, beauty brands have to, to sort of you know, address the issues of mental health and, and sort of well-being that um, many, many people are sort of struggling with as a result of perhaps, you know, rather um, unhelpful and um, rather sort of poorly, poorly sort of projected images of what those norms around beauty should be. And it's great to see things like Dove's partnership with Getty Images um, to create image an image bank that reflects a much more representative and inclusive cast of beauty. And although that isn't regulated, you know, I do feel that, you know, that that is the direction of travel that we're beginning to see, um, as is other obviously um, sort of acts in place, such as the Crown Act, which is around race-based discrimination on the basis of hair texture. Um, and again, this is an initiative that is supported by Dove um, and, you know, recognising the sort of the, the need for more brands to cater to natural hair textures of all types. And although some of these aren't, you know, explicitly regulations, I, I think that there's an appetite from consumers to, to see more consistency in the way that beauty brands are showing up. You can see that, for example, with the online campaign, Pull Up or Shut Up, um, which is, you know, off the back of sort of, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, where they're really holding beauty brands accountable um, for changes that they want to see. And even if those regulations don't exist currently, and it's always important, obviously, to be looking forwards and anticipating what regulations might come into play. I think being proactive as an industry to address what we're seeing in terms of consumer appetite, but also to head off some of those challenges that I, I just flagged around um, mental health, well-being, um, lack of representation, ensuring that we are sort of portraying and, and encouraging a much more diverse reflection of, of beauty is really important. And much of that starts in fact, with um, hiring practices, you know, that beauty brands need to ensure that they are building inclusive and diverse workforces, um, because, you know, that will ensure that they are reflecting back the thoughts, concerns, um, needs, desires of a diverse audience. And Mimi, should it be brands who are proactive about the regulations of future-proofing a diverse beauty industry, or should it be government-led? You know, I think this is a great question. And from my perspective, I think it should be both. You know, regulation can have a very positive impact on the industry. And it's exciting to, you know, see some of the brands take that initiative as, as Charlotte highlighted some of those examples, but um, would also be great to see um, you know, the government takes some, some positive strides in this area as well. You know, an example, Europe has often been 
you know, sort of a, a leader in thinking through, um, you know, the regulatory environment as it pertains to ingredients and, you know, banning toxins and trying to really have a stricter criteria for what um, consumers are putting in and on their body. But we are starting to see some of that gain traction here in the U.S. with um, California being one of the first states to declare a ban on on 12 ingredients that are already banned by the EU, and that should go into effect by by 2025. And and on the back of that, you're also seeing many brands um, proactively um, drive forward the conversation around transparency and um, and and helping to you know address some of that appetite from consumers to um, to have more you know, sort of clean label and, and, and understanding of what is going in and, and on their bodies. You know, Beauty Counter is a great example of a company that, you know, emphasizes ingredient transparency and, you know, has restricted, uh, I think it's 1800 ingredients versus, you know, the 30 that are in, you know, U.S. government, regu- you know, guidelines. And so um, I certainly think that there's, you know, an opportunity for both the government and, brands to really be proactive. A couple of other areas that I think are interesting that we may have touched upon briefly earlier in the conversation, but around data-driven cosmetics and tech trends, I think, you know, the responsible use of consumer data um, by brands and by providers um, to drive product development and serve the needs of a broader consumer base is, you know, incredibly compelling, but on the flip side, wanting to make sure that we're maintaining privacy and and data integrity um, and how in this sort of evolving world and landscape, we can, you know, help to protect uh, consumers um, from, you know, misuse of their data. I also think, you know, thinking a little bit about, and Charlotte mentioned this with the um, media imaging restrictions in France, you know, likewise, I think looking at how some of these amazing, you know, virtual try-on and other uh, types of technology can blur or create, you know, sort of a Photoshopping effect for products. And, and that needs to be something that I think we keep an eye on, um, as well as thinking through protecting IP for brands. Oftentimes, those brands that are sort of stretching and creating a product or solution for an under, you know, historically underrepresented group, um, you know, will will quickly get replicated or, you know, sort of um, see larger brands come in if there's proven traction for the solution or the, or the area that the sort of emerging brand is uh, creating a market for. And that can put a lot of pressure on you know, earlier stage companies, founders, creators, and, you know, I think there should be some, you know, thought to how we support innovation in, in a responsible way. Um, and so I think there's a lot of great positive impact that can be there. And, and certainly, you know, to your point, Siobhan, um, there's, there's an avenue for both brands and the government to work together here. Indeed. And for your brand, Megan, see ya. What are the regulations aiding and abetting it? Sure. Um, so we, like I mentioned, produce all of our products in Korea. And so this conversation around um, clean beauty has been very interesting because the Korean um, cosmetic world is regulated very differently than the American cosmetic world. Um, in Korea, 
cosmetic factories are regulated in the same way that a pharmaceutical factory is regulated. Um, and so the requirements on ingredient quality, on um, health and safety cleanliness are significantly higher than a lot of other places in the world. Um, and so when we initially started working on our production over there, we sort of took a sigh of relief that, hey, you know, we're going to be having really high quality products. We don't have to worry. And then as the clean conversation has gotten bigger and bigger, it's a wake up call to all brands that if you're not also focusing on um, ensuring that certain ingredients aren't in your products, um, like, you know, what my um, two counterparts have mentioned, um, that it's, it's, it's going to lead to consumers leaving you, right? It's not just um, a, a nice marketing thing now, it's that consumers expect that. Um, so we were very, very clear on what ingredients we didn't want to include, you know, things like parabens, mineral oil, BHT, um, and we're continually evolving that as this definition of um, clean and natural have continued to expand. Um, so, and, and I will mention as well, um, someone already said this, echoing that the U.S. market is, is pretty unregulated, especially in certain terms that are used in marketing, but there's um, private industry groups and private companies that are now trying to set standards um, for the entire industry to follow um, places like Credo um, and, you know, others that have already been mentioned. And so just this discussion around cleanliness, around transparency ingredients, some of the states passing laws um, are really pushing the entire industry forward, which is really exciting. Um, but I do want to echo what Mimi said as well, is that for newer brands that are either being innovative or trying to solve some sort of, you know, inequity and in trying to provide access to products, um, sometimes bigger brands can actually influence um, regulations that end up choking out sort of smaller brands innovation or, you know, niche consumer bases. Um, so I do agree there needs to be a balance. Obviously, everyone wants everything to be super um, clean and super healthy and natural based. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we're not so myopically focused on any one goal that we're leaving out um, other goals around diversity and inclusion. Indeed. And finally, Charlotte, what would progress look like in 12 months time? That's a great, great question. And I have a, a sort of longish wish list, really, which is, you know, I'd, I'd love to see um, a beauty industry that's and you know a reflection of beauty across you know all sort of comms and marketing channels which is wildly varied non-gendered ageless playful connected supportive and sustainable and i think also um one thing that we're sort of seeing more, much more of and i think really plays into that goal of a more diverse beauty industry is a real growth in content plus commerce models where, where brands are really investing in their content series um, as much as their products. So providing edutainment experiences that offer value just beyond that purpose purchase moment. Um, and I think that's a really sort of great way of addressing some of the things that we've already talked about earlier in this conversation, you know, being able to sort of help inform, be able to help sort of 
educate, be able to represent and be able to support consumers um, in order to make more informed choices. And for you, Mimi, what would progress look like in 12 months time? You know, I 100% echo the sentiment that Charlotte shared. I think to make a real impact and inspire consumers, you know, I want to see brands be really authentic in their approach and understand that diversity and beauty and inclusivity is not just a marketing tactic, but really an essential practice um, to listen and collaborate with their consumers and uh, communities to create a really successful and meaningful um, ecosystem. You know, inclusion is, you know, a necessary and ongoing process that needs to be thought through during, you know, each phase of a marketing or product development process. Um, you know, I'm excited about the strides that we've made so far in creating, you know, a more inclusive and diverse industry than, than perhaps, you know, generations before have seen, but I do absolutely want to see that continue to expand. And, you know, my hope is really that we see a truly equitable industry where no consumer feels or could be categorized as underrepresented or there isn't, you know, sort of a, a solution or product that um, they, they'd like to have that just isn't available or accessible to them. I think, you know, 73% of, uh, of U.S. adults agree that the beauty industry plays upon, you know, insecurities in the market. And most of, of those individuals agree that the idea of beauty is, is way too rigidly defined uh, even today. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities for the industry to evolve away from these negative perceptions and really empower the consumers that they're serving um, if they're able to create a much more collaborative and inclusive uh, environment. You know, even from a perspective of, of marketing and advertising, being able to show that there you know, are different ways to be beautiful um, is something that resonates with many you know, American consumers. And I think the successful brands and, and companies going forward will recognize that demonstrating that strong and very authentic commitment to diversity and inclusion, whether it's through, you know, their own employment of, of their, of their teams, product development, marketing efforts, um, fostering a community, uh, thinking through how they're sourcing, all of that will drive inspiration and, and ultimately win support from, from consumers and create a much more, you know, mutually beneficial ecosystem that, um, that we can all be excited about. And finally, Megan, what does progress look like for your brand in 12 months time? Thank you. Um, so we are very, very focused on serving historically underserved, um, communities and populations. And so for us, that means we launched in like I mentioned, this um, independent beauty supply store market that serves women of color, it serves rural women, it serves professionals, but now we're expanding that definition internationally. Um, and so we're going to countries like Colombia, where you know they've sort of been left out of all the innovation and the excitement around new products and diversity um around shades around age around the definition of beauty um and we're bringing that there as well and then places like the middle east and asia where the definition of beauty is even more 
you know, closely defined um, than America right now. Um, so really pushing the envelope of what does beauty mean? Who deserves to be included in that definition? Um, I totally agree. And from an industry perspective, I want to echo Mimi. Um, I really want us all to focus on authenticity rather than exclusivity, um, because part of the reason the industry hasn't felt great for a lot of people, myself included, is it's always defined itself based on what it's not or who it doesn't serve, as opposed to a more positive focus on what it does do and what the story is for each brand. Um, and I think part of that that I'd really like to see is more and more more companies being led by and driven by actual users of cosmetics as opposed to, um, you know, people who maybe haven't used products, they just think about it from a, you know, dollars and cents perspective, because beauty really is this very internal, personal um, thing that affects all of us. And, it impacts how we see ourselves. Um, and it's not, you no know, diversity inclusion isn't just checking off a box. It should be just the air we breathe at a certain point. Um, and so we are hyper-focused on continuing to expand our mission of bringing, you know, the best possible products, um, streamline Korean beauty to as many people as possible uh, because we believe that everyone deserves beauty. Um, and so I'd love to see the rest of the beauty industry, um, you know, follow the example of so many amazing brands um, that, that are really championing that message. And with that, I would like to thank my guests, Charlotte, Amy, and Megan for joining me today and to you for listening. <laughs>